Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Nature Photographer podcast from NAMPA, co-produced with the guys from Wild and Exposed. So we have today, we have Ron Hayes and Michael Morrow, and we've invited Nate Luby to come on and talk about his exciting project. And I'll let him kind of describe that without spilling the beans and what he's going to talk about. But, you know, as we usually do, we talk about where we're calling in from. Um, I'm still out here in Estes, I'm kind of getting tired of being surrounded by wildfires. Thankfully, that's all kind of done now. And um, But we have Ron is up in Wyoming, I'm assuming. I've been kind of stuck in Wyoming for a while, which is not a bad place to be stuck. No, I, I don't got, think that people would complain. <laughs> And then, Mike, you're back from Alaska. Yeah, I came back to do a job, and then I'm just going to stay here till at least till January. Well, around the 1st of January, I'll go back to Alaska. But um, been getting out a little bit to do some shooting. Not much. Everything in Colorado, as you know, is brown right now. So unless you get snow, you get brown. Deer are brown. Right. The grass is brown. The mountains are brown. You do get blue sky. <laughs> Yeah, the skies have actually been really pretty the last few days. So we've had some really, really nice sunrises out there. I know you're one of the people that you don't like brown on brown. You don't like the brown deer on brown landscapes. And I was actually thinking about that the other day. I was out photographing some deer, some white-tailed deer, and this gorgeous light. And everything was all golden. And it's, I thought it was really pretty. I'm like, yeah, Mike doesn't like this. That's okay. If you get that golden light or that twilight stuff, it's awesome. But it just in the middle of the day with brown on brown on brown and everything's brown. It's just hard to isolate or, you know, it just doesn't have that, you know, if we would get weather, that's why I think I love Alaska so much is you get weather, you get mood, you get, and it's regular. It's not like, I mean, everybody loves Colorado because we get 300 days of sunshine every year. Right. That's like, for me, that's like my kryptonite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the 300 days is, I think it, I, I don't know what the classification is, what, designates a, a day of sun whether it's just an hour or not but we still have some pretty pretty impressive sunrises and sunsets yeah that we do nate what are you up to uh i am just back home in seattle um uh, i had a kind of a whirlwind trip off the grid for a while and i've just been back home uh locked in my editing dungeon for the last month basically so it's uh we haven't seen the sun since 2014 out here so i i feel you on that moody weather situation <laughs> <laughs> so nate if you guys are not watching on youtube he's got this picture behind him of uh, <laughs> i don't even know what it is is that a picture you took or is that like a painting? no i don't know i i found it on skype i was jealous that you guys had such cool backgrounds and i just had my editing room with like a pelican case and a half assembled tripod so well i was I wondering if that was the street where your editing dungeon is on oh wow no that'd be really cool no <laughs> <laughs> So we should describe what the photo, like you said, for the people that aren't on Skype, what the photo, it looks like it's a, some sort of composition of illustration and photograph and kind of all yeah. these glowing windows and somewhat industrial, yet it's got a palm tree or something in the back. I was kind of wondering if it was actually from a video game, maybe. It almost looks maybe. Yeah, maybe. It looks cool. It looks like I would want to have a little place there to do my work. Yeah, it wouldn't be so bad. You said you're 
project off the grid. What is that? Well, I, I did two things. I, I did the, uh, the project, I guess I'm here to talk about. And then I, I had a wildlife workshop in Yellowstone and Grand Teton right after it. So it was an entire like five weeks, a little over a month on the road. And then I came back home and edited. But the big one prior to my Yellowstone workshop was also up in Alaska in Fairbanks. And um, it, it's called Light Side Up. Basically, we um, we put the Sony A7S III, that brand new, you know, low light behemoth camera, into a styrofoam box, and we attached it to a weather balloon, and we sent it up into the stratosphere at night, and we uh, became, we think, to our knowledge, maybe the first people to get like full resolution 4K video of the aurora borealis from the stratosphere. Yeah, there's some pretty, pretty, pretty amazing photos coming out of that. I, it made me think back to the first time I saw the aurora it was actually from a plane coming yeah. into Alaska. And it was so I was above the clouds looking at the aurora and I had never seen anything like that. Everybody's sleeping on the plane and my jaw just dropped. But it was kind of that. And you're even higher. You're, you know three times higher than, than what a plane would fly with the weather balloon you used. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, there's only so many different ways you can change your perspective when doing astrophotography. And that was sort of one of the inspirations for doing this is getting up in a plane completely changes how it looks. And I was yeah, kind of the same thought, like how much higher can we get? Can we get like inside the Aurora? And it turns out, no, you can't, <laughs> but we got pretty close real quick for, for people listening wondering about equipment first of all the a7s3 uh, i've got some questions about that and, sure. and the performance of that camera but insurance yes so <laughs> who who insured this project i have like a business photography insurance policy through Allstate, and um or at least she used to before this aired <laughs> <laughs> right well so when I signed up, I was very comprehensive with them because I think my job's kind of strange. You know, they were they were like, what if somebody breaks into your studio? And I was like, I don't really have a studio. My studio is like Machu Picchu. Right. And so I was pretty comprehensive with my agent before I signed on to the policy. Uh, he probably thought I was a lunatic because I was like, what if I get trampled by a rhino? OK, what if I get robbed at knife point? What if it falls off a boat in Antarctica? And he was like, dude, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> But um, this, I think, was classified as, like, remote imaging, which was covered, so. To fly a drone, to be a licensed drone operator, I have to have a test and do all this kind of stuff to be certified, right? And I have to go through this every two years. Yeah. Did you have to do anything to fly a balloon like that? Because I was wondering. So, just to preface this for our audience, too, Nate was kind enough to send us a, what is it, 30 minutes, right? Yep. A 30-minute film that he did about this project and it's not released yet we got to see the pre-release just so that we'd have an idea of what to talk about tonight and it will be out soon it'll probably be out before this podcast airs but if you haven't seen it you'll and we've we've kind of got the pre-release so we got to see and and while i'm watching it i'm watching this balloon go up and i'm like holy mackerel and i don't know how much you want us to give away about the project i guess it won't matter because that vid that film will come out way before yeah 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 we can, we can discuss all of it yeah. so if it went up to a hundred thousand feet did you have to get any special permits from like the faa yeah that's a that's a great question there's a ton of regulations around ballooning and almost none of them overlap with droning which is kind of strange because it's you have no control so it's not like technically an unmanned aerial vehicle because we can't steer it which is sort of an advantage but also that's the most terrifying part 
It's like you let go of it, and it's just like, cool, see you 12 hours later, I hope. Uh, <laughs> you know, with like professional quality camera equipment in a styrofoam cooler you bought on Amazon for $10. Um, <laughs> so you have to follow like airspace regulations, of course. You can't fly through the restricted airspace. Um, and then there's like a weight restriction. So we'd have to get an FAA waiver if the payload is of a certain weight. And then they have another restriction for the tethers have to be able to break with 50 pounds of weight. So basically, like if an airplane wing hits it, it just like cuts it off. You can't have like, you know, 600 pound test fishing line that would potentially have enough resistance to cause damage. Um, the, the good news is, you know, we launched on a really calm night by design. We were looking for a really windless night. So the balloon went more or less straight up. And the cool part is that like airspace isn't really restricted above like more or less 30,000 feet because most airlines don't fly that high. And then 60,000 feet is the absolute cutoff. Like even military zones don't have flight path restrictions above that because it's basically not possible more or less to fly that high. So, um, you know, 60,000 feet was only halfway for us. So we were pretty fortunate that we just kind of went straight up. We did pass over Fairbanks International and the Eielson Air Force Base, but we were so far above the airspace airspace restrictions that we were kind of just in the clear wow that's awesome that was the first thing i thought of as i was watching that video i'm like my gosh the the regulations you must have had to jump through but it doesn't sound like it was too bad we had a lot of rules that we had to like make sure we didn't break um but once we like you know like keeping our payload under a certain weight and keeping those strings the right breaking strength um but then yeah after that it's just kind of like don't fly through clouds and watch out for like where you let go of it and where it's going to land. So that was kind of nice because yeah, it would have been a, a huge headache to have to file a bunch of federal permits on so, something you can't control where you fly it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two questions, Nate. Number one, you cover this in the video, but if you could walk us through kind of how this became even a concept. And then also, how long did you research before you guys actually decided to go out on location and, and wait for the right day? I had the idea last year at Sony's condo event, which is just like a bunch of photographers get together and hang out for a couple days. Uh, and I was just talking with some other photographers about the Aurora Borealis. And um, actually, the same thing Don said, a couple of them were like, man, it looks so cool from a plane. Have you ever seen that? Like, I've only ever seen it flying to Iceland at night and I didn't see it on the ground. And uh, we were talking about how cool it would be to, like, try and get good footage from a plane. And weirdly enough, there were hot air balloons there that day. And I looked over the hot air balloon and I was like, that's it. And so I just kind of <laughs> I was like, oh, that not literally a hot air balloon. But I was like, that's such a cool, you know, it was floating very peacefully and very stable. And I was like, you wouldn't have to shoot through an airplane window. And so I that kind of like got the the gears moving for me. And then uh, I have to be honest, I thought about it like almost every day for <laughs> the year after that just trying to brainstorm through it. Cause there was a lot of challenges that we had to try and figure out, you know, you can't just like tie a string to the, you know, like the tripod mount on your camera and let it go and just like, hope you find it. So there's a lot of challenges to, to overcome. And I, I spent a lot of time talking to engineers and doing some research. I went so far down the rabbit hole. I was actually reading like uh, peer reviewed science journal articles published by like NASA engineers that they were using for flying, uh, like remote sensing equipment over Antarctica and balloons. Uh, but it ended up being like really valuable resources. It sounds like it. I mean, just the GPS techno technology that you would have had to figure out and know that it's reliable, right? 
Because that's yeah. the only way you're going to find this thing, right? Totally. And we had a lot of redundancy too, which was important. So we had like a, a Garmin inReach in there, which, uh, you know, transmits from the Iridium satellite network. But we figured like, what if that one dies? We want a backup. So we actually had a second GPS in there that transmits from a completely different wavelength that transmits in the radio frequency. And so just, you know, not just having redundancy, but making sure that your redundancies don't overlap in case cloud cover or something ends up shutting down one of your networks. And yeah, there's a lot of a lot of intricate things to navigate for that. Since we're talking, you know, this is a one of the the partner podcasts with Nampa and Wild and Exposed. You know, one of the things within Nampa, I'm always amazed at the just the ideas people come up with. And <laughs> I mean, this is kind of one of those same things that um, you know, just a, somewhat of a simple idea of looking at the aurora, but looking at it from a different perspective. So we've talked about where you got the idea from. What do you hope to do with it? What do you want to do with the footage? So we're we're making that film that we're we're going to release. We want you know, just kind of to get some traction with that. But I don't know if I have any like ultimate driven goals for it as much as I'm just like really excited to have footage that nobody's ever seen before. That's kind of a rare thing nowadays with the prevalence of digital photography. Um, so I just, we're just really excited. Like we have shots that I guarantee you've never seen in your life and that's really exciting. So I'm just kind of excited for people to see that. Uh, it's beautiful. I'm, I'm pretty thrilled with how it came out. And do you think the Aurora is different when you look at it from, I mean, is, does the angle appear different or anything or? I think so a little bit. Yeah. It does kind of feel like you're sort of immersed in it, but as much as anything, um, I mean, everyone who's listening probably is aware, like astrophotography isn't so much about the sky as, as much as the foreground in front of it, right? Like a good photo of the Milky Way or the Aurora needs like a beautiful mountain or like a, a tent or something in the foreground to give it some perspective and that's probably my favorite part about this footage is that the foreground is like all of planet earth you can see the curvature of the horizon and you can see these tiny little dots of cities below you and i think that's really really cool oh wow (laughs) (laughs) it's just yeah and i agree with you you need some sort of terrestrial base to it something that makes you feel like you're grounded when you're looking at yeah yeah like all those celestial components that are up in the sky every night yeah and this is like, we're so far up on this. We actually exceeded our altitude goal by like 20, 25%, which was wild. But we're so far up, uh, the atmospheric density is only like 3% of sea level. And so you actually can see basically the atmosphere. Like you're, we're so far up, we're out of the atmosphere almost. And that's like the craziest thing. You can see the earth and then this thin layer of haze where is all of the air. And it's just kind of surreal to me. It's like all of life exists within this tiny little film over the planet and it's really cool looking at it wow and there's a ten dollar cooler that's hauling your payload (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly that elevation six thousand dollars worth of electronics and like a ten dollar piece of styrofoam (laughs) it's so how many times how many attempts did you have at this was it Um, a one one shot deal or we had uh three balloons with us and um we had enough helium to do three flights, but I should preface also like the balloons are four or $500 each. Um, and then the helium itself is another six to $800 per flight. So we had enough for three flights, but every attempt is like very expensive. So we're trying to limit that. Um, so we ended up flying twice. Uh, the second one was the one that we got all of our footage for. And the first one, 
I can give you some approximate GPS coordinates for where you can find a free A7S3. <laughs> <laughs> In its styrofoam box. Yes. Uh, we narrowed it down to an area that's just about the size of Yosemite National Park. So if you can conceptualize how hard it would be to find a single cooler lost inside Yosemite. So if you all have listened to our podcast, a lot of episodes, we interviewed a guy by the name of Cameron Roxbury. Cameron flies, what was it? Some sort Apache of helicopter. Hel- Apache, Apache helicopter? Helicopters. Out of Fairbanks. Out of Fairbanks yeah. Oh. So maybe you ought to give him the coordinates. And if he's like <laughs> yeah. zipping around out there by happenstance and sees a, you know, it won't work in the winter, but in the summer you see a white styrofoam cooler, he might locate that. Yeah, it still has a, a well, we hope, we're pretty sure it has a 10-foot red parachute attached to it still. <laughs> yeah, it probably should. I mean, I can't imagine. It's going to have to survive the winter. I don't think the camera's going to survive, but, well, who knows? It might. If it doesn't yeah, get wet. Yeah, we weatherproofed it all. We uh, The box was sealed to be watertight uh, with two different layers of, of waterproofing, so it, it totally could be cool in the in the summer when everything melts. It might still be perfectly fine. So, you know, when I go to the airport and I, I travel with these big duffel bags, they're just the North Face duffel, duffel bags. I just take a Sharpie and put my name and my address and my phone number and my email address. Did you do that on the outside of the styrofoam? On the inside, yeah. Oh, on the inside. <laughs> yeah. So if, when you find it, whoever finds it, you can, uh, it's like it's like the ultimate geocache, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whoever finds it's going to be so confused though. Like, could you imagine finding that in the middle of absolute nowhere? It's <laughs> right. There's yeah. going to be plenty of reindeer that, or uh, caribou that see yeah. it before anybody else. Definitely guaranteed. It is about as middle of nowhere as you can get in North America too, which is the, that's the unfortunate reality of it. The, uh, the closest town is about a hundred, 150 miles from it. And it's a town that I think in the last census had six full-time residents. So wow. it's, yeah, it's remote, unfortunately. There's people flying up there all the time. So yeah. Yeah. Between adventurers spotted. and hunters and yeah, I think it's going to be a country. hunter. Yeah. A, a hunter will find it is my guess. Or Cameron. I'm going to call him tomorrow after this <laughs> podcast and I'll say, Hey, we got a project for you. Hey, how would you like to shoot Sony? <laughs> it's got a pretty nice lens on it, too. It's a full set. You know, it's got a battery. It's got a really nice memory card in there. Two of them. You just want the footage back, right? Yeah. I would love to get those cards back. So did you have successful Northern Lights that night, too? Like, So if you did find that camera, is the chances pretty good that there's good footage on that? Actually, surprisingly that night the aurora didn't really develop very well uh it was kind of a it was a prediction it was supposed to be pretty good and it you know some nights it just like doesn't really happen the way they're hoping so i don't know if that's like a little comforting to us but i actually don't think the footage on those cards will be (laughs) that great which is cool uh if it had just like erupted for three hours while it was in the air and then we lost it that would have been more devastating i think how long did you guys wait for weather because you said you had to launch obviously on a calm day because you wanted to go relatively straight up. So did you spend a lot of time waiting on that? How much research did you do with the, the winds, meteorological conditions, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're kind of in this like small niche for these flights. Um, you can't, you know, we couldn't have done it during the summer cause it's not dark at night. You know, the sun doesn't really go down. It doesn't get dark. So you couldn't see the Aurora. 
And then at the end of September, early October, the polar vortex picks up, which is just this like howling jet stream. Here we're talking 100, 150 mile an hour winds um, starting at like 60,000 feet. And it basically continues until April. And so we have this like two week period in the Arctic where it gets dark at night and the winds are not yet howling up in the upper atmosphere. And so we were there with this two week band and we arrived in Fairbanks and it was just pouring rain on us. Um, we kind of got there during a storm, which was devastating. So we, we spent the first five days, I think in town, just waiting basically just like it's raining. We kind of like constructed our payloads. We just were watching these weather reports. You know, there's like a, we're not just checking like, you know, wonderground.com. We have, uh, my partner Austin is a pilot. So he has all these like high altitude weather apps and we're, we're doing some like modeling on flight simulators to see which direction it'll go. And we did finally get a, a clear weather window as a night. Well, our first attempt actually was a night that was perfectly clear and we got all set up and the winds were kind of blowing hard. So we bailed our second night out, we got, it was perfect launch conditions, no wind, not a cloud in the sky. And then that was unfortunately the night that we were not able to recover the balloon. Um, and then there was another like five or six day waiting period. And it was actually, we postponed our flights by 24 hours so that we could have a second launch because we wouldn't have been able to do a second flight. And we had, uh, we had some serious talks about that. You know, we all bumped our flights back, spent a couple hundred dollars each to stay one extra day to do this flight and hope that we could do it. And we were able to able to make it happen, which was really cool. Well, it's better than the alternative of waiting another year. Exactly. Yeah. And that was the bummers. There was no option to like, maybe we'll come back next week or like next month. Right. It would have been next September. So Yeah, we see that so often in nature. If there's a photo that you miss, it's oh, it yeah. it tends to be very cyclical and it's usually on an annual basis. So wildflowers or elk rutting or you know particular snowstorms whatever the situation might be yep yep like a solar eclipse so look at the photo behind ron there like if if that's coming and then all of a sudden it's cloudy you know you're just like okay cool see you in 18 months right (laughs) that sucks (laughs) that's why planning so important it sounds like you did a ton of it on this on this project was there anything that was unexpected in your planning that yeah, you kind of wish you could have changed or maybe anticipated. Yeah, so I mean that's what led to us not recovering our first flight, unfortunately. So there's there's kind of this like stasis you need to reach on the buoyancy of the balloon. You fill it with enough helium that has enough lifting power that it will just continuously ascend until it bursts, and then the parachute deploys and it comes back down. And we uh, we did all of our math correctly, I believe on the right amount of lift because it ascended at exactly the rate that we had calculated. But um, because those, you know, the polar winds are starting to shift around as it goes from continuous sunshine to continuous dark, there's a lot of like thermal changes. And uh, our best theory is that we hit a patch of like unexpected cold because we got up to 117,000 feet and then the balloon just stopped ascending. Uh, And it stayed there for two and a half hours at, 117,000 feet moving at 90 miles an hour to the east. And um, that's what took it into like such a remote part. We actually started calling air traffic control in the Yukon um, because we were worried we were going to start like literally invade Canadian airspace, which would be a huge crime. (laughs) And so (laughs) that didn't happen. Thank God it popped. Um, But yeah, so that was it, I guess. We 
we felt like we'd thought of everything leading up to this, but we hadn't calculated, I guess, or we hadn't anticipated the option of a severe, like really high altitude cold front. Um, we're guessing it might've been a hundred, 130 degrees below zero. And so the balloon stopped expanding because the air was just much more dense. You know, the air is supposed to continuously get thinner as you go up. So the balloon expands until it explodes. And this one just stopped and it stayed there. And I, I wish we had maybe calculated that or factored that into into all of our preparations. And then that kind of had the the additional like snowball effect of all of our the batteries died in the GPS units and everything. Because you know, we calculated everything correctly in terms of if the flight had gone right, but we'd never intended for these GPS units to run for, you know, the the two-hour flight turned into a five-and-a-half-hour flight, basically. And several of those hours, it was, you know, triple digits below zero, and so the batteries all got too cold and they died. And so we had everything transmitting through the balloon bursting and descending from 117,000 down to about 50,000 and that's where the batteries died. So we watched it on the way down and we lost it in the last like 20 minutes of the flight is when the GPS died, which is kind of heartbreaking. So I, that was the one thing I wish we'd maybe countered for was just a little extra battery capacity in the event of an extended flight like that. So uh, there's just no way to do. I mean, yeah, th then you start <laughs> looking at payload problems and all that jazz that goes along with it, right? Right, exactly. Um, especially because, you know, I mentioned there's like a payload weight where you have to start dealing with FAA, and that is six pounds. And our payload was about five and a half pounds. And so we didn't really have any extra leeway for putting more batteries or heat packs, et cetera. You know, we were kind of like brushing up on that on that barrier anyways. And it, it all seems so obvious in retrospect, like, oh, why didn't we just account for, you know, the flight being twice as long? It's you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but you're totally right. Like, how would you have ever predicted that looking forwards, I guess? Right. So tell us a little bit about your team. You mentioned Austin, and he's a pilot, so you've got that technology and that, that mind structure behind you. What? Tell us about the rest of the team and, and all the people it took to get this to go. Yeah, so uh, on the ground, there was just the three of us. So it was me and Austin, who he's my climbing partner. We've done a bunch of stuff. Like, we climbed in Peru, and we climbed the tallest mountain in Mexico together. And then the third person is my girlfriend, Autumn, who's she's also a member of the Sony Ambassador team and professional photographer. And she is probably one of the most obsessive Northern Lights and astrophotographers I've ever met. So it was kind of a no-brainer. Um, she would have definitely changed the locks to our apartment if I had not invited her on this trip. <laughs> <laughs> so that and was And rightly much, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I, I would have deserved it. <laughs> Just throw a sleeping bag out the window. I'll spend a couple nights on the street for that one. Um, but yeah, so it was just us three. But we had a lot of uh, support staff behind the scenes, I guess. I mean, first of all, Sony, um, one of the you know people there I work with, was able to get us two A7S3s before they were available to the public, which was really cool. It's, it's hard to get one production model, but getting two pre-production models, um, you know, with kind of just like a, <laughs> like, please try to return these kind of a thing. Um, that was kind of cool. And then I, I worked with Breakthrough Photography also, because they have a really impressive, they don't just make filters, they, they're starting to make tripods and they have this full engineering team and uh, a fabrication lab. And so they actually built the whole stabilization system that attaches to the cooler. They 3D printed a bunch of uh, components for mounting the camera inside the box and attaching it to the balloon. 
And, and so that was really the most important part, I think, was finding engineers that couldn't, they weren't just able to help draw up these concepts. Because I, I did some sketching. Actually, here, look, I still have the sketches with me. So, oh, oh, I, <laughs> that's weird. Okay, so I did all these, like, you know, drawings and stuff. And they were able to take those drawings and turn them into actual manufactured parts, which was really, really fun. I think in your film, you talked about, you filled up a whole sketchbook of ideas. I mean, it, and who knows what that is, probably 1,500 pages of sketches and over and over, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, it's actually still right here in front of me. I have, you know, this is a drawing I did of, um, you know, potentially how to release the parachute when it gets to the top. Oh, man, the artificial background just keeps getting me. But it's, uh, you know, I was originally going to have the the parachute, like, deployed with a, a small pyrotechnic charge. I used to do um, some rocketry, you know, and, like, it gets to the top, and there's a little like a gunpowder burst that pushes the parachute out. And I was like, maybe that could help reduce the airflow drag on this balloon and give us additional stability. And it turned out that was like way over complicating the problem for what we actually needed. But yeah, there's, there was a lot of, you know, like with anything where you've, you're kind of pushing the boundaries, I guess there's a lot of bad ideas that are not necessary before you settle on the one that needs to make the project happen. You got to have a lot of bad ideas before you get to the right one, right? None of them are bad. They're just steps in the process. Totally. And this is like, I I feel like this idea would still work, but it's just like, why introduce like four more levels of failure and more expense and yada, yada. So we got there though. Sometimes keeping it simple works best, right? Totally. And the funny part is one of our solutions ended up just literally being like nylon zip ties. And it's really funny to me because I have like five pages in this book of me trying to sketch this like complicated system. And we were like, what if we just zip tie it together? And it worked perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That'll work. Yeah, totally. They cost like four cents each and uh, you can, yeah, <laughs> you can find them anywhere. So how did you feel about the finished product? It's not completely finished yet. You're still kind of polishing yeah. it up for, for release. Right. But yeah, did it meet your expectations. Yeah. The footage from the balloon is really cool. I'm really happy with the way that looks. Um, it's not fully stable. My dream was to have it just look like I was on a, you know, like a cinema boom arm for the whole flight, but that's just not possible. There's, as you saw in the footage, you know, there's a part, some parts where it sways, but that's actually kind of cool because it shows that you are on a moving object. Um, and there's parts of that, you know, where the balloon's going 85 miles an hour and there's barely any motion in the camera because the, the airflow is just so smooth. But yeah, I'm really happy with it. It's it looks really really cool from up there, and um, I have to admit I'm impressed by the camera. the The footage from the flight is at 102,400 ISO, and um, it's not perfectly clean, but for 102,000 ISO, that's pretty crazy. I heard yeah. that when you were talking about when you were first setting all the equipment out. And your girlfriend actually mentions that. She's like, all right, the max ISO is set at 102,000. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just, yeah. that's, and that's crazy. The, that's the maximum native ISO too. That's not even getting into the expanded ranges, which is mind boggling. So let's talk about that a little bit. So did you just go over your settings? So when you take off, you're hitting record. So it's recording, right? So the minute you're, you're still holding on to that balloon, you hit record and then you're like, okay, away it goes. And that thing is just going to keep recording. Yeah. Till, well, till the battery <laughs> dies, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or until both cards are full. 
So, I mean, that sounds terrifying, right? As photographers, like just hitting record and like hoping that something looks good later. <laughs> right. So how, yeah. what size of cards and then what were your settings? And so it sounds to me like if you just set a max, you were doing auto ISO or what were you doing? Yeah. Yeah. We did auto ISO. Cause as you know, the Northern lights really fluctuate in brightness, like pretty consistently. Uh, you know, they'll kind of like, you'll get a couple of really strong ripples and then they'll die off. And we didn't want to risk having like the most beautiful footage be completely blown out. And so we decided to just cross our fingers and trust the camera to kind of do auto exposure. So we set our, you know, aperture manual, our focus manual. Uh, we shot with a prime lens. So that was manual, I guess you could say. And then, yeah, auto ISO and just hoped that it would adjust. And it, it did a pretty good job, actually. So I think we kind of got lucky because it's just it's really dark up there. So it just kind of it was just kind of up. So what was the aperture that you used? So we used the 20 millimeter f 1.8 lens from Sony and we uh, wide open. Yeah, we did wide open. We had a little bit of a discussion about if we should like stop down to get rid of some vignette and like maybe make it sharper. But the name of the game for trying to take like, you know, full speed video at night is you just need as much light as you can. So we went with wide open. Mm -hmm. And uh, that lens is really good, too. So I don't I don't feel like we made a huge sacrifice there. How does Sony do it? I have a Sony and I guess I don't even pay attention to it. But when you hit record, is that giving you just one file or is it splitting it into those four gigabyte chunks? So it's just one file, which is kind of scary. Yeah. Not kind of scary. <laughs> That's a lot of scary, especially when you yeah. stop and eat dinner and watch your footage before you download it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, so we had we had two cards in there. So we, we were kind of writing back up on it. And um, we had, well, the first flight had that new CF Express Type A card that they came out with. So it was 160 gigabytes. We did not get that card back. So the next flight was two of the 128 gigabyte cards. And uh, yeah, so they uh, they filled up. <laughs> you talked about redundancy. Did you have any redundant cameras? Did you throw an action cam on? We wanted to. We wanted to put one of those like little Insta 360s on one of the like outrigger posts to try and get video of the payload like from a third person perspective. But like I said, we were so close to that weight barrier for FAA regulations that we weren't able to make it happen. And we were also worried about, you know, maybe like that would throw the balance off or something as well. And we were really we were there to get like clean good footage of the aurora people have sent gopros up and gotten video of the aurora before but it's like you know it looks like a gopro at night it's mm -hmm. it doesn't look very good so we didn't do any redundancy on that because we kind of figured that like if the sony failed i didn't really have a whole lot of interest in like gopro footage of the aurora because then we're not really pushing the boundaries that's kind of the same thing so. gopros are awesome if you get a lot of light yeah, totally. totally. You know, if you don't have light, then yeah, it just falls apart. So, yeah. but it would be, and man, so one of my questions that I wrote down earlier was, is this something you want to try again? And then how can you make it better? I mean, it just with that payload limitation, I'm not sure what else you could do. I mean, it'd be cool to have a camera on each side of the box, right? So if you could have yeah. four cameras going the whole time, but then you're looking at a 20 pound payload. Totally. Yeah. I don't really want to do it again. This was so stressful, but um, I do think there's like, you know, this was like starting to push the boundaries. I think there's like, there's more to be explored there, but you're totally right. I think the next step would be to get full FAA waivers 
for like a 15 pound payload and, you know, make, get one of those like NASA custom, not a latex balloon, like a polyethylene balloon, like one of those monstrous ones that looks like a trash bag that has huge lifting capacity. And then, yeah, I want to put like a, like a, a cinema rig, like a Sony Venice or something in there with a, you know, a, a T 1.2 cinema lens, something. I feel like if you're going to go for it again, I would want to like really go for it, but then it's a whole different thing. And then it's not a $5,000 payload. It's like a $130,000 payload. So then it has when, six GPSs in it. That's a different kind of sponsorship <laughs> right there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like working with Red Bull. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's a way to send two, I mean, you don't have control of the balloons, but if you send two up at the same, you know, within like five minutes of each other, could one potentially film the other one somehow? Yeah, definitely. And that'd be pretty cool. It's actually so much work to inflate them and get them ready, though. I was kind of surprised by that, to be honest. I was kind of like, oh, we're going to like fill a balloon and then tie everything up. And it, it took us like five hours to set up and get everything inflated and ready to go. So that would be really cool. But you'd need like a pretty substantial team, I think, to pull that off. You're a really good bumper to tie it to. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, Nate's, Nate's belt loop was the bumper on the first one. <laughs> yeah, it sure was. <laughs> Seemed like such a good idea at the time for people listening at home. I, you know, once the balloon's inflated, it has like 10 or 12 pounds of lift. And before we had attached it to the payload, I didn't want it to fly away. So I, I carabinered it to my belt. So there's a scene in the film where I'm just getting a powerful wedgie from a balloon the size of a car. <laughs> if you don't care about the northern lights it's probably worth watching it just for that right what didn't red bull do a project not too long ago where they had a guy jump off of a yeah what was jump. that it was off um, of a, out of a balloon altitude. yeah yeah out of a balloon yep. yeah some, somewhere around like one hundred and twenty thousand feet it was felix baumgartner who, who jumped and we talked about that a lot it looked looked pretty cool but <laughs> I don't think they would send somebody up with like a tripod to take photos. You know, they want, they want that action sports niche. Well, maybe Don could ride in that second balloon. Oh yeah. <laughs> and get the shots. You know, get that. It's a slight headache waiting to happen at three percent <laughs> pressure. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need to bring some oxygen. So, do you think you'll do it again or no? You know, I said no when we finished. I was like, "That's it. I'm done. I'm never." in opening a helium tank again for the rest of my life. Uh, but the more I think about it, the more I'm like, ah, there's more to be explored here. Uh, beyond the Aurora, like how cool would just the Milky Way look, you know, just from the continental United States, fly it, take off somewhere in Utah where I don't need a helicopter to recover it. I can like go out on a dirt bike or something and try to get yeah, like the core of the Milky Way, you know, over Las Vegas and LA or something. It could be really cool. So there's more to be explored. I don't know. I might, I might think about it. There's a photographer that I know here in Colorado who is into um, clouds and sprites and, you know, the electricity that comes with storms. And you know, there's yeah. probably all kinds of really neat things you could do with that. Those aerial type of views. Totally. From a balloon. Yeah, absolutely. You were talking about that footage just swaying a little bit. And once you see the, the film, you'll see that sway. And I, it didn't bother me because, you know, I mean, you're like. You're doing stuff that hasn't been done, right? Yeah. Do you think there are ways to fix that, perhaps with like a gyro or? Definitely. Is yeah. that something that you could clean up in the next go round? Yeah, I think if you're not constrained to that six pound limit, 
there would be ways to like attach a you know a gimbal like a stabilizing gimbal to it where the balloon tethers come down into the payload and it like actually could just you know manually stabilize it and that could be pretty cool um but you know you have to just accept that you're going to be flying like a 10 or 12 pound payload and people in the ballooning community have done all sorts of crazy stuff um when we bought this balloon i wasn't sure if it would have enough lifting capacity and they sent me a link to a video the same balloon that we used was used to set the world record a guy flew a turntable and he played a he literally played a record at like a hundred thousand feet i don't know why but (laughs) just to say he did yeah so there's a lot you can do once you're uh, able to like extend that six pound limit but yeah, I think there's there's ways to get it like flawlessly stable that could be pretty cool, gyroscope or a gimbal or something. You all need to go watch YouTube right now because Ron's wheels are spinning. I can see it. <laughs> I'm just thinking. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of potential here. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think the point, yeah, the point you Nate, you mentioned it earlier. There's a lot of footage out there already, but what you've done is taken it to the higher quality level. And, you know, use, you know, bigger cameras and, you know, more, you know, is more precise the correct terminology for it. But it's that higher quality that you were really striving to achieve. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people, I mean, almost everyone who like flies a balloon puts a camera of some sort in there, but it's usually like a GoPro or something. And uh, they usually, you know, has like a single string tied to the balloon. And so it, it wobbles back and forth and it'll spin around. And, you know, when the lighting conditions are low, it doesn't look good, and you know, so it'll be like a pitch black sky with a overexposed planet Earth below it. And so the challenge here was trying to get it, you know, stable and high quality, like cinema quality stuff, and that that was really the challenge. Yeah, I when you first, so Nate sent us an email. Nate's been on Wild and Exposed podcast before as a guest. Sent us an email to talk about this project, and when I first started to think about the potential. That's when my wheels started turning. And now listening to you talk, I'm just sitting here listening. I'm not, I'm not asking questions because I am thinking about how in the world, <laughs> how can we get one of these right in the middle of a lightning storm? And will Sony sponsor that? <laughs> <laughs> the thing that's weird about it, though, is that, you know, the lightning storm, what do you think that tops out at? Like 40,000, 50,000 feet? Yeah, it's not very high. So... It rises at about 15 feet per second. Um, wait, am I doing that? Yeah, so we were doing about 1,000 feet per minute. And so if you're flying it through a, a lightning storm, you know, you're know you only going to have 20 or 30 minutes of footage, which that could be enough. But it's kind of it's wild to think that you know it went from sea level to like the summit of Mount Everest in less than half an hour. So you, it would be a brief pass through, and then you'd be way above the storm. But mm-hmm. that could be really cool, too, for something like a, a hurricane or tornado season that could be incredible those were the two i was just thinking of the eye of a hurricane how trying to get that baby launched is going to be the problem (laughs) (laughs) yeah you're talking sideways for a little while Mm -hmm. (laughs) so my cousin flies planes for a living and to get his jet time he used to fly uh canceled checks this is back in the day of checks right very many you know banks would collect checks and then they would fly them in a Learjet back to the main banks to Ron, you probably know more about this than I do, but it was the interest, right? You could save so much money on interest in, I don't know how the whole thing worked, but 
it legitimized having jets fly these canceled checks around. So I used to fly with him because he was just flying by himself, just carrying blank checks in a Learjet. And we would fly over the top of those thunderstorms oh. at, coming from El Paso, Texas to Denver. And you'd be at like 45,000 feet and you just have it, the, what you can see below. I think it'd be amazing. Just even if you, but then you'd have to have almost the camera pointing down and you wouldn't yeah, want to would. get footage going up. You'd want it once you were over the storm. That would be awesome. Yeah. Totally. We put a lot of work into making sure the tilt of the camera was correct, you know, making like the ground, the bottom third and the sky two thirds or whatever. So it wouldn't be super hard to do the opposite of that and point it down for sure. Yeah. The only problem is going to be on the landing when you land on the camera. (laughs) Well, we had some protections on the lens. Yeah. (laughs) So that had to be really good timing for Sony too, which probably was one of the reasons why they were able to give you two cameras because that camera was designed to do that, right? That camera was designed for that mission. Yeah, totally. I think uh, once this comes out, it will hopefully be a pretty serious marketing asset for them because, you know, there's not a lot of times when you're taking video with 102,000 ISO and have it actually be usable. So um, I was really glad that it came out because, I, like I said, I've been thinking about this for a year and I, I was going to use the A7S two. And they officially announced this one like a month before I was set to head out. It was just very fortuitous. So in the film, you talk about after the first failed attempt to recover, you you were standing by a sliding glass door and you're like, I'm going to go make the call to Sony to tell them that we're not sending a camera back. <laughs> well, how did that call go? Because I don't think that was uh, rectified in the video itself or in the film itself. It Did they, were they like, well, you win some, you lose some? Pretty much. I mean, they were hoping to get it back, of course. Uh, but yeah, my, my, my contact there is very understanding and she knew that this was a gamble, right? You know, anytime you're pushing the envelope, there's, there's a chance that things aren't going to go to plan. And so that was pretty much the response. They're like, okay, well, we knew this was a risk. That kind of sucks, but you know, don't, don't stress about it. You're there for a project. You're there to, to do this. So focus on what you need to do. And then there's kind of some silence and they're like, are you, uh, are you going to try it again? (laughs) And I was like, I want to, is that okay? (laughs) I think that speaks volumes. And I think you, they have to know that, right? They just have to know if you're going to break some boundaries, it's, it's not cheap and it's, it's taking a chance on a lot of things. So. And like you said, I mean, the marketing aspect of this, I mean, the footage that they now have, is going to well go beyond what the other companies are, are using for their latest model releases. Yeah, they yeah. can put that on the box, actually. <laughs> Good to 130,000 feet above sea level. <laughs> yeah, from now on, when people are like, Sony's don't have good weather ceiling, they can be like 100 degrees below zero. What's up? <laughs> right. or, or the reverse, it can survive a fall from 100 and some thousand feet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was amazing to see the recovery footage when you just find the... And the box didn't even look... I mean, again, it's a styrofoam box. You just think when it hits the ground, it's going to be like a million little pieces like you see on the highway when somebody loses their cooler. Yeah. And this thing was completely intact. Yeah, it did have a parachute, I guess I should say. It didn't just like free fall from up there. Uh, Right. So yeah, it came down under, under a parachute, which is cool. And the cameras were running all the way until it hit the ground, which is kind of funny. So there's... In the last couple of minutes, it's like pitch black and all of a sudden you see a tree and then there's a loud banging noise. And then like 
40 minutes of footage of the strobe flashing against a bush. <laughs> it's just like, okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's crazy that it didn't explode or I, I was expecting a little bit more damage from like crazy pressure changes in the atmosphere or something. It's pretty cool. So did you have to send that camera back to Sony? Yeah. yeah. So they're going to probably put it in a museum one day. That would be cool. <laughs> I think it honestly just re-entered circulation of like their loaners that they send to people for projects, which is funny because somebody's out there now probably like, you know, filming a ballet video. They have no idea that the camera they're using was literally in space like a month ago. <laughs> the other thing that my wheels were spinning about is there's got to be some aspect <laughs> of this project that would qualify you for Guinness. But uh, that'd be cool. That's something you probably should look into. I don't I don't know what it would be. That's kind of the yeah. thing about Guinness is that they you can like make up your own tiny little right. niche and they'll just call it a world record, right? Find so, a category. Yeah. Farthest distance anyone's ever traveled a CF Express type A card. Something <laughs> like that. Like some right, tiny little niche. You find some niche with it, right? The yeah. other thing too, I mean, you know, you always talk about these Oscars that people, you know, for new technology that's out there. You guys built, you know, platforms and found ways to stabilize it. And you didn't quite kind of knew what atmospheric <laughs> conditions you were going to have. But that'd be cool. That That's dreaming big right there. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to dream big, right? <laughs> yeah, might as, I guess this project was dreaming big. So why stop now? Right. Right. For sure. Is there anything we haven't asked? I don't want to give away everything in the film because I want people to go watch it. It's pretty cool. But is there anything that we haven't asked you that you think is just a, a highlight that we've skipped over? No, not really, actually. This has been pretty comprehensive. No, it's so timing. good to watch it. It was cool. so good yeah, to watch it before, it. yeah. I appreciate you sending that out to us. And so when this does launch, Nate, where can people view it? Uh, I'm going to put it out actually first just on my YouTube. We're going to do kind of a premiere, which is kind of wild. You can do something like that on YouTube. Uh, but we're going to put it on there for a while just to give everyone a chance to, you know, the people who like actually support my career and follow me on social can watch it for free. And then we're going to roll it over to Amazon Prime. So it's, uh, but yeah, we're we're targeting the first week of December. So hopefully <laughs> that's why I haven't left this room for like three weeks because I'm, trying to get this all all done and you know there's some side bits for various sponsors and stuff that i have to have to put together as well but uh yeah first week of december we're hoping it'll come out we're going to do a little bit of a premiere have a little a couple more speaking engagements like this like with bnh we're going to do some like web series and stuff and then yeah it should be pretty fun once it's finally out there i'm really looking forward to what the public reaction is going to be oh it'll be awesome it's it's a fun fun film to watch Cool. So are you doing all the editing yourself? I am, yeah. Yeah. My girlfriend's doing the animations. Uh, I know you saw the intro animation on there. Yeah. She's doing a couple more. She's worked as a graphic designer for a bunch of years and uh yeah, together we're just kind of plowing plowing through it. Now Michael's wheels are turning because he's about to put you two to work. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, I mean, you just know how much work goes into something like that. It's so you guys are in the rough draft kind of or rough I, ish. You, Yeah, Yeah, it's close. I mean, yeah, it was totally watchable in in the version we got to see. So what do do you have left to do? You have to get your animations in there. You have to do the uh, color pass on it. 
Yeah, I haven't done any color correction yet, and I haven't done any like sound levels. Um, yeah. So I'm sure you notice there's some parts where like the speaking voices are a little too quiet and stuff. And then I actually have reworked the story just a little bit to give a little more background because some of the feedback we got was that maybe we didn't go in depth enough about like how much work it was to to plan and design this whole thing. We kind of like flew over that. So just uh, touching up little bits of the story, and uh, I think it is actually much better now than it the first draft, which is cool. Um, you know, like any artist going through a revision, I did have a little bit of a mental breakdown where I was like, this is way worse. I hate it. And then I slept and I woke up and I was like, okay, no, this is better. It happens all the time. I, I go to bed thinking I just, there's nothing I can't, this is never going to work. And yeah. then you wake up the next morning. It's like, Oh, well it's not as bad as I thought. Yeah, totally. It's just, you spend so long staring at the screen and you know, you're like zooming way in on your timeline and you're cutting like a tenth of a second off so that the vocal transition is right. It's like right. you just get way too close to it and you're like, this whole thing sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be cool yeah. for our audience to see, I think, even a like this version, you know. Yeah. It'd be cool to put out your main version and then maybe six months from now we, you let us know if you put up a, a rough draft because I think it, that is part of that educational process that, so many people don't understand in the video world, the more and more people that are doing video. Yeah. I mean, the evolution of a video project is mind boggling. That's a good idea actually. Cause I have some, uh, instructional stuff on my YouTube. I've, I've done like editing walkthroughs and stuff to help people kind of learn the ropes and photography. It's a really good idea. Cause there's the, just from coming home with 1.8 terabytes of raw footage and then like sorting through, hours and hours of like you know it's just us like sitting at a table looking at weather charts <laughs> sorting through all that and assembling a coherent storyline you're totally right that's uh that'd yeah. be kind of fun to talk about yeah no it would be if you do it let us know we'll certainly uh push that out oh cool that'd be awesome i've also been thinking about eventually uh you know like i said we have like two and a half hours of footage from the flight it might be fun to just publish the whole thing unabridged i think people would eat it up yeah Totally. There's a there's a really cool section where the northern lights are going off and then a, a shooting star, a meteor, just like streaks right through it. And it'd be fun It'd to be... like put that out in the crowd and see what other kind of because I haven't I haven't been able to like force myself to pay attention for two and a half hours straight. So I kind of like scrub through it for the good bits. But it'd be fun to see what the internet crowd would find because I'm sure there's more in there like that. Oh yeah. Well, you know, there's people that'll sit and watch a fire burn on their TV for a digital fire burn for hours. <laughs> This my is friends way more fun than that. that. <laughs> it's funny you bring that up. One of my friends just literally last night was texting me and he was like, dude, have you seen this YouTube channel? You can put it on your TV. It feels like you have a fireplace. And I was like, I do have a fireplace. <laughs> it's great. You're totally right though. People will, people will dedicate the time to it. Yeah. Yep. I think that, I think it would. I mean, I've seen cameras on fish tanks. Yeah. You know, it's all that. And this is way, way cooler than that. Yeah, don't Thank you. don't encourage that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's going to be our blurb for the press release. This is way cooler than a fish tank. <laughs> way cool. <laughs> I guess first of all, I like to push limits, and the limits that you guys pushed on this project. Not only, I mean, conceptually, uh, right off the bat, you're you're kind of pushing the limits of what people even think is possible and then figuring out how to get it done. I think that is encouraging for a lot of young photographers just to try to find something that just hasn't been done before. There's not that many things that you could say that about. 
So this project is definitely unique in that aspect. Yeah. And I look forward, very much look forward to seeing the finished product. Cool. Thank you very much. I was very envious. I, I told Ron before we got you on, I was like, man, what a cool idea. I'm so bummed I didn't <laughs> think of that. <laughs> the hardest part was like being really protective of who I told because I, I knew it was it was a pretty unique idea. And I was like, man, I don't want to. I don't want to slip this out too far and like have somebody try to beat me to the punch or something. Right. Get their second. Yep. For yep. sure. So. I have a sponsor for you when you go the next time. So <laughs> you won't have to use styrofoam anymore. Okay, cool. <laughs> Is it going to be heavier than six pounds? I, feel, I have a feeling it might be. They, they can build it pretty light. Yeah. Oh, all right, cool. Maybe we should talk. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> well, maybe Ron will go out with you and do his thunderstorm thing. Yeah, let's chat. Might as well. I'm always looking for the next crazy thing to uh, ruin my sleep schedule with. <laughs> Absolutely. You can sleep later. Exactly. Yeah, totally. You sleep when you're dead. Totally. And sometimes you try to fall asleep. Yeah. Well, for this project, there's a couple times I would try to fall asleep and I would just feel like I was dying. So <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of roll it all into one, you know? Well, and that's what makes this story so good, right? That's that failure, that early failure, just that's exactly what you needed. I mean, it's not what you needed at the time, but it's what you needed for this story. Totally. That was actually one of the things I brought up on the call with Sony. And I was, you know, like once we had established that the camera was gone and I was very sorry about that. And I was like, here's the good news, though. Like the film is going to be so much better now because we have that drama. It wouldn't have been as cool if it was just like we went up there and everything went perfectly. Right. Right. So we got awesome yeah. footage and it took 15 minutes and we're back. That wouldn't maybe convey the like difficulty of, of what we had done. So, right. No, yeah, I, I guess it, it worked. It still hurts to say it, but it's probably a good thing that the first one didn't fully succeed. That camera will show up one of these days. Someone's going to find it. So. It would be so cool even if it was like 10 years from now. It would be so cool. We're on the A7S9, and uh, <laughs> it would just be fun to get it back. Oh, know? no. It took them a long time to get the 3 out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're right. We'll be on the A7R15 and the A7S4. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> this is definitely a very cool project, and... I mean, you know, I always teach you know, when I teach either give a presentation or I'm teaching people out in the field. I always talk about how photography is very much a combination of creative mindset and a technical mindset. And this is really a, a combination of those two, of really pulling those two sides together. You know, the, the engineering side of it and how you kind of did a lot of problem solving. But the flip side was you wanted the creative, you know, the the output of that that video on the the other side of it so and the video you know the movie that you're putting together yeah that's a great way to say it it, it really is kind of like ref, left brain right brain right and you have to be creative but also technically minded at the same time and this was this was a combination of that for sure nate before we go give everybody your instagram handle i'll put it in the show notes on the on the web page but your youtube channel your instagram handle and uh anything else that might be of interest. I mean, we'll, if you do special sponsor videos too, just let us know where we can find those. Sure. Um, and then we could put a link to the video. You said first part of December, which that's probably when this podcast will launch right around that time too. So yeah, yeah, it's coming up pretty quick. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find. I'm just Nate in the wild online on every channel. So if you search Nate in the wild, I'll pop right up. And um, the project, again, is called Light Side Up, 
and that's the name it'll be functioning under. And uh, yeah, pretty much, I guess all the sponsor videos will be pretty easy to find. We worked with Sony, we worked with Breakthrough Photography, and then we did a little bit with uh, Atomos. They sent us one of their uh, Ninja 5, their external monitors, so we could test out the new raw video capabilities of the a7s3 so we put together a little video for them too but we uh we'll be going on a full social media blitz so if anybody's trying to track this stuff down if you uh find me online nate in the wild you'll be able to find everything else too perfect cool well thanks for uh, having me on again guys it was great to chat yeah, yeah thanks for thanks for Thank coming you. on and thanks for sharing this with not only the wild and exposed audience but now our nampa photographer podcast audience as well so it's pretty exciting it's always always a nice thing to hear nampa members doing great things